0: This podcast contains potentially adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly sexual context. Listener discretion is advised. So we've been kind of drinking throughout the day. So no. Fun. Um, I'm your host, Erica Lance. With me today is
1: Vanessa Valiente.
0: And our guest today is <laughs> Carrie Vaughn. <Mon>. Woo! <laughs> okay, let's talk about what we're drinking. We really love this thing. I'm about us. Okay. So I do have one of my drinking with authors cool tumblers, and we now have shot glasses, which I'll send you an email. You want one, Carrie? I send them to all of our guests. And in, in it, yes. Well, Melinda has one. I've decided that I want all of you guys who are just amazing, amazing, epic authors to do a group photo. <laughs> Preferably with whiskey. It has my my drink is a Blue Moon. It has an orange that I actually cut up, so I feel super fancy about what I'm doing. Um, Vanessa, what
1: are you drinking? Ooh. Okay. So I'm drinking the Dreaming Tree, and this one is Crush.
0: So mm -hmm. yeah. Very very
2: cool.
0: cool. What are you drinking today,
2: Carrie? Um, I'm gonna call it by its fancy name. This is a Cuba Libre. Um, Yes. Also known as a rum and coke. But I put a I put a (laughs) lime in it, so it's fancy. It's like the orange. We're very
0: fancy today. (laughs) We're fancy. I'm proud of us. Okay so tell um the listening audience if they have not heard of you before which means they live under a rock but if they haven't will you talk about what you write a little bit
2: um i write science fiction and fantasy i cross all sorts of genres Uh, yeah i i did the math recently i've been a professional writer for 20 years now so i've I've kind of gotten to the point where people ask well what do you do and i i kind of get stoppered up because i don't know where to start Um, I'm probably best known for my urban fantasy series about a werewolf named Kitty who hosts a talk radio advice show for supernatural creatures. Um, That series ran for 14 novels um, and a couple of short story collections, and I actually just had a couple of uh, collections related to the series come out this year, um, The Immortal Conquistador and Kitty's Mixtape. Because along with novels, I really love to write short stories, Um, and so I wrote a ton of short stories set in that same universe, and I was able to bring those together, which made me really happy. Um, I've written a bunch of other novels as well. Um, I a couple of years ago, I won the Philip K. Dick Award for my post-apocalyptic murder mystery called Bannerless. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, those are probably the things um, that I'm best known for. Um, and also this year, I wrote uh, two novellas about Robin Hood's children um, that I had a great time doing and I'm really proud of.
0: I saw, so, that. Yeah. I saw that. We cyber-stalk our guests. We call it research, but it's really cyber <laughs> because... You know, it's the internet, and we get to do stuff. It's it's really interesting to me that you said that about short stories because we talk to a lot of authors who write novels. So I I'm really good at writing short stories. I can do it, no problem. Two thousand words, one hundred words. I can do fucking flash fiction, but I know a lot of authors that can't do that. Like they start to write a short story. And then 25,000 words later, they're like, OK, it's done. And you're like, it was supposed to be 5,000 words. <laughs> Thanks. So how you find it easy to jump between both?
2: I do. Um, and I'm really grateful that I do, because I think being able to do both and move back and forth between them has given me a lot of opportunities. And it's just a really good being able to kind of adjust the size of your story is a really good tool to have in your toolbox. Um, so I started with short stories, and I'm, I'm kind of—I I started long enough ago that 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 was the advice that you got writing in science fiction and fantasy. You start in short stories, and you make a name for yourself, and then you move on to novels, um, and and that was kind of the conventional wisdom is, and that once you moved on to novels, you wouldn't be writing short stories anymore. So I hear that a lot—the people that started in short stories and then moved to novels. Um, I, I wrote my first novel by accident, um, kind of because the stories I was writing got longer and longer and longer. And then all of a sudden I'm writing 30,000 words and I highly recommend writing novels by accident. Um, you know, I meet so many short story writers who get so anxious about writing a novel when they get started on that, um, that they just they, they anxiety themselves into inactivity. So, so doing it by accident is great. Um, okay, so Take
0: us to, okay, we're going back 20 years more i could describe what i was wearing at that time let's see 20 years ago where are we in 2020 so that would have been 2000 i had some parachute pants so let's talk about <laughs> what happened back then i didn't have parachute pants in 2000 they were not fashionable anymore. okay so let's talk about you coming into writing and accidentally writing a novel so where do you begin your story
2: Okay, I actually have to go back another 10 years because it took me 10 years to break in. <laughs> so this is an epic, which oh, is the is one wild. thing I haven't written yet. I feel like so cool. we're in a
0: time travel machine
2: that is are, not are.
0: the way it needs to.
2: <laughs> so I, I started trying to get published when I was still in high school. I was not a very good writer because there's just not very many 16 year olds that are very good writers. I didn't know that at the time. Um, So I just kept going um, and not selling writer at that time. Mm -hmm.
0: Everybody should have read your work. I mean, you're, I was,
2: I was so sure that story about the dog that survived the nuclear apocalypse that was three pages long was just going to like sweep all the awards. I was absolutely sure of it. It, it didn't happen. Um, so I kind of, you know, I I graduated high school. I went to college. I was writing. I was, you know, submitting. I was living my life, doing the things. Um, still writing stories. Still not getting published. I worked in a bookstore uh, for a few years after college. Um, and what I would do is, you know, we had notepads by the phone, so when people asked for a book, we could write down what they were looking for, and then go go look for the book and all that kind of stuff. Um, I would write notes about the story I wanted to write and shove them in my pocket and then get home after work and pull all those notes out. And then that was my writing for the day. And that was kind of how I wrote my first novel, is that I was I was at work writing notes, shoving them in my pocket, pulling all the notes out at the end of the day. And that's kind of how it happened by accident, is I was just in this mode of thinking about the same story all the time. Um, And it just happened that I kind of had the leisure to do it. And I had big pockets (laughs) with lots of notes in them. My cardigan better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It turns out when you work in a bookstore, nobody notices that you have like notes falling out of your pockets all the time.
1: I actually, I actually used to do the exact same thing you did, but I was a server in college. And right in between like taking orders behind my slip, someone would say like a piece of dialogue. I'm like, ooh. I'm gonna put that in my novel, and then I'll be like making notes or writing like descriptions, and that was how I wrote my first like absolutely terrible, never will see the light of day novel. But hey, you gotta start somewhere, and you gotta make the time, no matter where that is.
2: Exactly, and it, and that was super easy to do because you know you're you're at the store, you're moving around all the time anyway. There's just a lot going on, but the, you know the story, the story machine was still working in the back of my head. So I, I should spoiler alert that novel never got published. <laughs> <You know? laughs> <laughs> that, that first novel was terrible. It, it's it's in the trunk. Um, weirdly enough, I wrote a short story, kind of taking that same idea of the novel that did get published a couple of years ago in Beneath Ceaseless Skies. So never throw out an idea. You know, it will always come back around. What was um, the
0: novel about, though? You're leaving us, what was the novel about?
2: It was about, it was fantasy. It was traditional fantasy. Uh, it was about a woman um, whose husband dies and it, it begins to rain in this world. It starts to rain and it never stops. And my main character, one of my main characters, she is a farmer um, whose husband has died and she kind of goes a little bit crazy and attaches herself to an adventuring party. Um, and so there's like the standard adventuring party with the, has the knight and the wizard and the, the secret princess and all these really interesting people. But my main character was this farmer's widow um, whose farm has gotten washed away and she has nothing else to do. So she starts following these adventurers around um, and they have to save the world.
0: <laughs> oh, I bet mean, she'd be good at it though. Yeah, I
2: she is. She is because she gets underestimated. Like I said, I, I, I'm, and now you're going to laugh that I'm not remembering the exact name of the title. It, the story's on Beneath Ceaseless Skies and it's called I Have Been Drowned in Rain. Mm. And so you sort of get the backstory, but... But, and this is a good way to talk about like novels versus short stories like I wrote this entire novel about this group's adventures and how they saved the world. But the short story ended up being like one scene you know they're on the beach, they're running away from the bad guys they're trying to get a ship that will take them across the water. and then a bad thing happens, and she ends up saving them because she's the one person that the bad guys discount, that they think that she's not powerful and that she doesn't have anything. And which was kind of the whole point of the novel. It's like, let's take the least likely character and make it all about her. And I remember my critique group at the time is like, well, you've, you've told the story from the wrong point of view. She's the least powerful, least interesting character there. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's the point. <laughs> you know, like no, <laughs> Nobody else is writing stories about this person. Why, why shouldn't I write the story about this? I think she's really interesting, you know, precisely because she's got this weird perspective, um, you know, that she's a, a totally powerless person in this world. So what can she do? You know, what can she do to kind of get, get her life back after it's been taken from her?
1: Actually, well, you said that you took some nuggets of it and finished it into a new story like how much of it of the original would you say was even salvageable or how much do you think you, what did you take from that one and put into the new story.
2: Just the characters. Like I, I really didn't take anything else just because, you know, it, it, that's the difference between a novel and a short story, you know, a novel is the big epic suite, but the short story is, you've got a couple of characters in one situation and you're and it's usually a pretty pivotal situation but uh you can make the story feel really rich by bringing in all of the backstory like like hinting that there's this ton of backstory going on um but what what the story is really interested in is like this one thing that happens with the, this one set of characters um and you compress it like you compress the whole thing and and it and it It gives the I've done this a couple of times, you know, things that I thought were going to be novels that I ended up turning into short stories. Um, And, you know, I consistently get feedback on it that's like, you know, this feels like it could be a novel and I'm like, yeah, it could be, but it turns out it didn't work as a novel. You know, know, it, it turns out, for whatever reason, there just wasn't enough of a hook but by compressing you know all of that backstory into a short story it ended up being a way more powerful than it would have been you know spread out over a hundred thousand words versus five thousand words
0: she's asking for a very pointed reason oh
1: no, you know why it's because well the current novel i have was never my first one i've actually written a couple leading up to this one And there's a part of me that like wants to go back to the very first one, but I know it was basically me as a baby writer, just trying to figure out how to piece all the bits together to even make a coherent story. But I still, there are still elements of it that I still love and I want Mm -hmm. to bring back, but it doesn't fit into the narrative of any of my current stories. So I always find it interesting where, you know, some people say, no, I'll never use the first one and then you find out other people either a found, you know, some tidbits that they were usable, or they were able to like redo the entire story, like just rewrite mm-hmm. it from scratch based off the new knowledge that they've gained over the years. So it's, I, I find it very, very interesting.
2: Yeah, I don't, I oh. have several novels. Oh, I'm sorry. No, you, you were, go ahead. Um, yeah, I have several novels. It was the, the fourth novel I wrote was Kitty in the Midnight Hour, which was the first novel that ended up getting published. So I have uh, you know, several novels that I wrote that did not sell, and I get asked quite a lot, like, "Would you ever go back to them?" And and, you know, the answer is always no, because you know, not just because I don't really feel the impulse to go back to them, but I've got so many new things I want to work on, and I, you know, I, I'm a different person than I was 20 years ago when I was working on those novels that didn't sell. Um, but I, I I totally hear that because I I spent a lot of time on those. Drafts, you know, the, those those sort of failed novels, and and I learned a lot, um, and I can never discount that. So, no, I don't really have an atten- any intention to go back and like rework those drafts into something publishable or saleable or interesting or or whatever. Uh, but but yeah, it's like they they weren't wasted. It's like yeah, I'll I'll definitely go back to them, um, and and it's interesting to you know see how how far I've come. Um, but yeah, I've got too many new things to write to, to really want to re- rework um, the old things, you know?
0: Right. My first story that I wrote started with the, the night was dark and stormy or something Aww.
1: like that. That's how I knew that one <laughs> needed to be
0: shown I'm not kidding. I found a, a, a printout of the first couple of pages. I was on a dot matrix printer. And I was like, I, I shouldn't show this to anybody ever. <laughs> Any-
1: no, I, I. that's how I shelved my first one, was I tried to test it against a bunch of, like, writing articles. Because, you know, you're trying to figure out, okay, what's good, you know, the, the advice. And it was like a checklist of ten things that you don't include in your first chapter. And nine out of the ten I had committed. <laughs> and so I had, like, the character waking up and looking themselves in the mirror and, like, yeah. a mundane place and it's just uh it's interesting to go back to it and be like oh my god what the hell was i thinking at the no time? it was brilliant
0: it was brilliant <laughs> okay so in the bookstore what did you go to school for
2: uh literature okay oh that's good i, I have a cool. master's degree in english lit. yeah pe- people kind of assume that i i have a degree in creative writing but it's in literature um so
0: that that's still brilliant that's still i was wondering if you're gonna go accounting I was going to be an account. We talked to so many writers that oh, maybe the account was
2: the wrong answer. Funny, you should bring up accounting. Um, you know, because my my mother's a CPA, and my day job for eight years. Kind of my last big day job was I was the administrative assistant in a in an accounting office, a tax prep office. So.
0: I drink and I'm psychic. Look at I'm,
2: me. <laughs> I'm very fond of the accounting trouble, but do go on. I'm sorry. I,
0: no, right. It's funny because my mom was a CPA too. And I did a lot anyway. Yeah,
2: well, my oh, da- yeah.
1: my dad's a CPA too. And I couldn't, like I tried and I was like, I came home and I was like, dad, I'm sorry. I tried. I did. I had a, my degrees in marketing and I was like, I tried, but I can't do this because I'm just such a creative person like brain that I can't sit there and just do numbers and balances. Like, but I, I think that's hilarious. <laughs> it's such a the no, it's just,
0: we're all accountants. <laughs> okay, good. End of podcast. No. Um, so we let's fast forward. So you, you're writing in your, your sweater pocket and then you do this and then fast forward. Now we're through four books. We're on book four that you finished. What happened mm-hmm. on that journey to book four? How do we get to book four? from sweater
2: notes book one. So, so one of the things, um, so between writing my first book and the writing the fourth book, I got my master's degree um, in literature. I also went to the Odyssey writing workshop um, oh, cool. run by Jean Cavallos. um, learned a ton. Um, I, I give Jean so much credit uh, I, I made my first pro short story sale less than a year after attending odyssey so so i had been in a rut and I, I you know i was writing but i wasn't figuring it out and and going to odyssey and just having six weeks to really focus on writing uh, was huge um went to boulder uh, colorado got my master's degree um working in the day job still writing still shoving notes in my pockets um you know, I'm, that is such a good question. Like what happened? What was it with that, that fourth book that, that made it saleable? Um, part of it was luck. There was a big part of luck. And by that time I was kind of fatalistic about it. Like nothing else had sold. So I just assumed that nothing was going to sell. So I was just writing whatever I wanted to write at that point. You know, there, there was a little bit of like wanting to write to the markets, like, all right, fantasy, fantasy is popular fantasy sells. I'll write fantasy. And that's great. And it turns out I'm actually not a very good fantasy writer. <laughs> I think. And we could talk about that. I think sometimes that I'm not the best person to talk about my own writing because I'm just I'm, I'm in the tunnel and I don't see it. Um, so from working in the bookstore, I became aware of Dr. Laura, Dr. Laura Schlesinger, um, who is a talk radio advice relationship guru person. She wrote a book called Ten Stupid Things Women Do to Mess up Their Lives. That was on the bestseller list when I worked in the bookstore. I hated this book with a passion. Um, I never read it. And I'm I'm okay with saying that I did I didn't read it and I still hated it with a passion because most of the people who bought it were middle-aged men who wanted to give it to their daughters. Oh. Um and it drove me bananas that they did not see the damage that they were doing um by giving this book to their daughters and their granddaughters. And just as a rule of thumb don't give self-help books as gifts ever um i i saw a lot of that like people really genuinely wanting to help but buying self-help books to give to their loved ones which is basically sending a big message of i think you're damaged and need help which and- which may be true but that's really not the way to do it. it it's it's really terrible it don't don't do it don't give self-help books as gifts um yeah, it's just it's it's super bad.
1: That everyone kind of has to come to their own conclusion. Like you can give it as you can give somebody a
0: book, but you don't do it under the guise of a present. Yeah,
1: like it's
0: not Merry Christmas. Here is that. Here, you need
2: help. You need you need you're broken and you need fixing here. Yeah, so so that's like a big rant and that's like a big powerful thing that I have living inside of me from working at the bookstore. Um, <laughs> But that was also the time that Buffy the Vampire Slayer was on the air. And I thought to myself, what if Buffy Summers called into Dr. Laura with her relationship problems, what would happen then? Um, And I realized Dr. Laura would have no idea what to do um, with the relationship problems of the supernatural world. So of course they need their own talk radio show. So that was the idea. Um, And it, it was, I thought at first it was a crazy idea. So I wrote a short story, um, because that's what you do when you have a crazy idea and you don't wanna spend 100,000 words writing a novel about it. So that's what I did, I wrote a short story. It turned out the short story uh, sold to Weird Tales. It was like the second story I ever sold. Um, And I had more ideas about this character and I wrote the novel and I kind of just wrote it um, as a lark, Um, you know? So I'd been writing all these other novels thinking I I wanna get published, I wanna be a novelist and here's the novels I'm going to write. but this was far enough along. It's like, you know, screw it. I'm just going to write this novel because I have the idea and it's fun and I'm having fun. Um, and it turns out I my timing was great because urban fantasy took off at about the time that I finished the novel and started shopping it around. Um, you know, Laurel K. Hamilton had been publishing for about 10 years. You know, Kim Harrison, Kelly Armstrong, Charlene Harris, Jim Butcher, all of these books were starting to come out. Um, Buffy went off the air, uh, which may be coincidental, but I think it's actually related that people were really starved for this kind of story. Um, and I wrote this book at about the same time. And so, you know, on the one hand, I wrote a book that was totally different from everything I had written before, um, but there was a market for it. And that was the important thing is, is that editors were looking for exactly this kind of story um, when I started shopping this around. So, So on the one hand, it's like, yeah, I got really lucky with Kitty.
1: But I, you know, I, I would say like anytime, it, you know, we've interviewed authors or I listen to podcasts, other podcasts with interviews that the one, the book that always seems to sell, like you can't control what editors are looking for, but the, I think the key ingredient that is in our control is the passion for it. You know, you're not pandering mm-hmm. to someone else's expectation of a, fant- a fantastic novel. You have to write the novel that excites you because You know, when you're writing that novel, which I know you're looking at me because she's yells at me to like finish my novel is that You have to have passion for your project. You can't sit there trying to meet some bar because you don't know All the elements of why someone likes something so you have to love it because that is what kind of comes off when you're writing and you're getting through those tough writing slumps so it sounds to me like you were like you know what screw it i'm not going to deal with anyone's expectations i'm just going to write what i love and that's it and then and then the other element was you wrote something that also fit the need that editors were looking for
2: well and, and you know writing what i think um you know because it, it it's not that i didn't love those other projects like i was really passionate about them while i was writing them and they meant a lot to me um but writing something that looks like what's already out there isn't going to stand out um, in the same way that writing something that's a little bit off the wall. And, and that was a really weird time for that kind of book, like the werewolf, vampire, soap opera, drama, urban fantasy. The, the, the thing that came to be known as urban fantasy because it wasn't actually known as urban fantasy at the time. And that's a whole other conversation that we could have because I, I, I found myself in the middle of it and I thought a lot about it. Um, but yeah, it, it wasn't a thing and it, it was just, I, I just had this crazy idea and I just wrote a book and, um, and I didn't know there was a market for it, you know? And, and it was, it was just different from the other books I had written. Um, and, and I think that might've been part of it is that the other books I had written, I was writing things that looked like things that I had read, you know, looked like things that were already on the shelf. Um and that's the problem is if you're if you're writing what's already out there, uh, then it looks like what's already out there and everybody's already seen it. Um and and it's really hard because there's just no way to predict and there's no way there's no way to predict what's going to be the next big thing. Um so yeah, writing writing for the market and trying to write what you think people will want is is really hard. And and I'm and it takes um it takes an instinct that I don't think I have. So My attitude at the time was, well, if I'm going to get rejected anyway, I want to get rejected for writing things I like, (laughs) you know, rather than rather than writing what I think other people want. Um, And and that was kind of a huge hurdle to overcome. It's like, you know, it it, this is a hard gig one way or the other. You know, it's difficult. um, It's difficult to break in at the best of times. Um, So if you're going to get rejected, you know, at least love what you're doing. Um because it because at that point that's the only benefit you're getting out of it is that you love it.
0: Are you traditionally published all the way? We're gonna come back to some of the other stuff. Are you traditionally published all the way?
2: I'm I'm like 90% traditionally published. I do self-publish some side projects that I have and we can talk about that and like why I did that. Um, I do have some self-published stuff out there, but I don't it's not um it's not my primary Thing and I don't put a lot of effort into it. I, like, I don't do any marketing, um, which is a world I'm just kind of starting to dip my feet into the whole kind of self-published marketing um, algorithm pursuit it, thing.
0: It, it is, is too, you know, we have, a, we have a small press we started at the beginning of this year.
2: Oh, excellent.
0: Yeah, we did it because we're pretty much fucking tired of the way the publishing world is for most authors not every author, but the majority of authors, the publishing world is like a horrible juggernaut of doom where there's choose your own adventure only ends in a pit of spikes, right? So, or, you know, a pit of vipers or a pit of this. So we did that. And it's interesting because as you go into doing that, being a self-published author, which a lot of us were before and then went we can actually help people. So let's do this differently is it is a marketing thing in self-publishing. It is so heavily, you have to know marketing. And it's interesting because it's changed a little bit that people are going, I wanna write a book, but I'm a marketer. So I'm like this, they're starting off almost as a marketer before being an author in the self-publishing. If you go all the way down that rabbit hole, it's interesting because authors are no longer just writing books. It used to be the time of being up in a cabin by yourself with a typewriter and, you know, this weird assistant that doesn't speak English and you're up there for, you know, six months or two years, doesn't matter, depends on who you are. And you write this, you know, this next great novel. And now, you know, we have friends that write 10 books a year. Mm -hmm. They're self-published authors to maintain a five figure a month salary to write 10 books a year, but that's what they do. In order to do it and then they do ridiculous marketing on top of that
1: Mm
2: -hmm. yeah and and that's what i haven't keyed into so so to unpack all this a little bit Mm -hmm. like that that whole fabled like the way writing and publishing used to be has always been a myth like there's always been an air of myth about that like 30 years ago they spent a lot of time talking about that fabled past where writing and publishing was better than it than it is now that's always been a thread in publishing um but you're right that things have changed a lot like like I like I mentioned I did the math and and so this number has been hovering over me all year. you know 20 years I've been at this um when I started out the the business or at least the science fiction and fantasy, this is another thing like science fiction and fantasy and romance and literature and young adult all work differently. like all of those little categories work, very differently so so the things you know i'm talking about science fiction and fantasy and that may not necessarily apply to young adults and it may not necessarily apply to romance so so there is it's all different it's all this big patchwork weird frankenstein monster thing when i started out science fiction and fantasy had basically been working the same for about 30 years 30 40 years uh like the the previous big disruption had been the invention of mass market paperbacks mm-hmm. Um, so that that's a big thing I could get into. The other big disruption happened in the 90s with uh Amazon and the chain bookstores and publisher consolidations. But even with all of that, things basically worked the same. You know, you in science fiction and fantasy, you broke into the short markets, the, the short story markets, or you know, you got an agent and you broke into traditional publishing, um, which was the only publishing at the time. Um it had basically worked the same. So I was, I came up using the rules that had worked, you know, for about 30 or 40 years at that point, um, within 10 years, everything changed, um, which was huge and upsetting and disruptive and made me really glad that I broke in when I did, because I broke in on the old rules that I had learned, uh, you know, coming up through the community, um, And we could talk about conventions, like science fiction conventions, is is another weird thing that science fiction has that, like other areas of publishing, don't have. Um, I'm. This is like a fire hose of information, so I don't know if any of this is useful. But
1: (laughs) I I write fantasy, so everything you're saying, I'm like, please, just tell me more.
2: But I I get it from both sides because I was working in the bookstore in the '90s when all the consolidation and and Amazon started. Um, like I went to the BEA where Amazon had, was the first year that Amazon really made a big push at BEA with their big banners in the convention hall and everything. And it was really weird. And everyone's like, what the hell is going on with Amazon? What is this thing? Um, Yeah, imagine a world with no Amazon. (laughs) It's like, that's the world that I learned the rules in. Um, I remember
0: the world of Amazon. I also remember the world of um, the sci-fi conventions. I went to Trekkie conventions. yeah was a thing now me being a nerd is cool I tell that I tell that to my kids too I'm like <laughs> oh it's, it's it's super weird, like, it's I super wasn't weird. like it wasn't nearly as cool
2: child let me tell you stories of stinky hotel basements you know because <laughs> that's where we had to go to buy our t-shirts you know in 1989 <laughs> Truth, truth and now you can get them in
0: target exactly now you can buy them off of amazon you can make little weird phrases from sci-fi shows, and people have them all over their shirts. And you're like, we had to make yeah. them from craft stores with like lettering. I'm <laughs> yeah. not really kidding. I had to make a shirt that said, "All your base are belong to us." Bec- yeah. So yeah, yeah. It was. Yeah. It was supposed to be in English. It was done by the Japanese, but it was supposed to be in English, but they, a Japanese person translated to English. Okay. So instead of we've taken all your bases, it said all your, all your bases are gone to
2: us. The whole this thing- is like the old memes. You are telling stories of the old memes. Yes. Like, we, we shall talk hamster dance next. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, um. And then there was the year that like everybody got Kindles for Christmas and suddenly self-publishing was viable. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I remember there was about a year there where everybody in the writing community was freaking out because the death of publishing was going to happen. And it really was going to happen this time. And I just want to on the record that it's been 12 years since then. And the death of publishing hasn't actually happened yet. So there was a stretch of time there where I I kept getting put on traditional versus self-publishing panels as the traditional author representative. And some of them got very confrontational because the self-publishing authors were very into the death of publishing um, narrative and that their way was the only way. And and the rest of us were dinosaurs who were going to die off. And it turns out none of that actually happened. And I I started kind of taking this middle road because what what ended up shaking out and and you could sort of see it shaking out at the time people read books for the same reasons, like whether they're reading traditionally published books and most readers don't actually tell, like they can't actually tell if something is self-published. Like if they're buying everything online, if they're buying eBooks, they don't differentiate so much. They they want a good read and, and they're, they're buying their books based on the same things that people buy print books on, which is word of mouth, authors that they already know, uh, the books that their friends are talking about, um, so, so the way that people go about finding books and buying books doesn't change, it turns out. Um, and, and you as an author, if, you know, people read books because they want to be entertained, they want to learn things, they want to feel things. Um, so the more of those bases that you can cover, the more successful you'll be, the more readers you'll find. Um, and the other thing is, it's like you're going to work really hard one way or the other. Like the thing that drove me crazy as an author is that there were people who were going into self-publishing thinking it was going to be easier. And it's not, it turns out it's not like, like people, I would tell my story and people would look at me like I was nuts. Like you spent 10 years trying to get published. Why did you spend so you could go and self publish your early novels right now and you would, it would be great. And I'm like, Oh no, no, it wouldn't be great because those are really bad. <laughs> you know, cause I don't want to self publish my first novels. Yeah, um, like so
1: they always say no matter if you're like the myth is if you're in traditional, you don't have to market. And like, that is, I think it's very like a small percentage where, you know, a publisher, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but they pick one person or one novel that they kind of put all their money towards, but everyone else pretty much has, for the most part, has to do some level of marketing. So you're not exempt from it if you go through traditional publishing.
2: Yeah. So that, that's another one that I, I kind of push back a little bit, I guess, because that's, that's another one that's, that, that that narrative has been around for a very long time. Cool. Um, you know, since the 80s that, that, you know, publishers don't really put money into anything, but they're big bestsellers. Um, I, I have to back up that I, I am one of the authors that they decided that they were going to really push when my first book came out. They gave away the ARC at San Diego Comic-Con. Oh, so I, I got a really big push there. Um, at the same time, like, Like there have been times where I asked my publisher, hey, could we do this? And they did it, Um, you know, so so it's not necessarily that they're not doing it. It's that a lot of times the marketing and publicity departments are filled with 22 year old interns um, who Mm -hmm. don't know any better. (laughs) And sometimes you have to ask and sometimes you have to push back. And, and sometimes they're doing things that you as the author don't necessarily see like reaching out to librarians and things like that. Like, like sometimes as authors we're not aware of how powerful the librarian market is. Whereas publisher publicity departments are. Um, and that's something as a self-published author you may not necessarily have any access to at all. Um, so this, this gets boiled down to like these really simplistic Um, assumptions, I I think. And and I'm not discounting anything that you're saying because I think it's absolutely true. I think one of the things that the Internet has changed is is the way that authors are expected to have an online presence. And you've got authors like John Scalzi who have, you know, used their online presence as fantastic marketing tools. And so publishers point to that and they say, you should be able to do what John Scalzi is doing when it's like, no, none of us can do what John Scalzi is doing because he was doing it before anybody else and he's better at it than anybody else and you can't just point at that and expect the rest of us to be able to do that. Um, but there, but there's still this kind of cargo cult feeling that like, well, authors ought, ought to be able to do that because John Scalzi did it and not looking at some of the, the bigger issues involved here. It's, it's just, so, it's so complicated. Um, the thing I resent now that didn't used to be true is that that publishers would give authors a couple of years to develop an audience. And that's not happening anymore. Like when I broke in, an author would get a two or three book contract right out of the gate, oh. and and that's not happening anymore. They're getting one book contracts. So you get one book uh, to find your audience, and that's not really fair. And 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 that didn't happen ten years ago. Um, you know, fifteen years ago when I broke in, um, so. Th- this is a thing that I think is absolutely true. And it's still true. And it's always been true that, that an author's best advertising is their next book. You know, you, you 10% draw percent with that. Like I am a <laughs> firm believer that
0: you need to have your next pre-order up. I don't give a shit when that thing is coming out, but the moment your book releases another book needs to be lined up out there. It's a and buy. people buy and they yeah. need when they're done with your book they need to see the next book they should be
2: buying like and that's and i think that's true for traditional publishing as well is that people when you have several books on the bookshelf at a time people are going to pay more attention to you than if you just have one little tiny book there um that that is easier to look over uh, so you you do need to be continually writing you know and that's true of self pub and traditional pub and and you do need to have the next thing out one piece of advice I give to people, both traditional publishing and self-publishing, is have your next book written before the first book is released. Because I've seen this happen where the first book gets released and for whatever reason, authors freeze up. Um, you know, it's it's stage fright almost, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, they start getting feedback back on that one book and it and it freezes them up. But if you've actually finished the second book before you start getting feedback on that first book, then it doesn't matter. Um, yeah you know, you're, you're sort of free of that pressure. Um, and, and I, it's super frustrating and disappointing when you read like a really great first novel and you really want the second one. And it turns out the writer, for whatever reason, that second novel never shows up, um, or takes five years and you've forgotten. Yeah, um,
1: so the, you, you wait so long for either a, for an agent to reply or for be the uh, you know someone to make an offer or you're waiting for your book to finally be released that you have all this time that you're waiting and sometimes you have to move away from that and focus on the next thing way ahead of schedule so you have that lined up so because they are always going to be waiting for the next something so use that time to really work on the next kind of projects you want to be doing
2: always be working on the next thing and, and I learned that as somebody who wrote three novels that never sold and never got published. And, and part of why they never got published is I stopped shopping them around because the next thing was so much better. You know, I wrote my first novel and I was super proud of it and I started sending it out, but because at the time nothing was done online, like there was no email, I was not emailing queries, I was doing everything by snail mail, which meant waiting for months and months and months to hear back. So I started the next thing and it was better. Um, and then I started the thing after that and it was better. Um, so I stopped sending out those earlier things because I could just see myself getting better with everything that I was writing. So that's exactly it. It's, it's, it drives me bananas that I do have, you know, writer friends, um, you know, aspiring writer friends who have worked on this one thing so much and they love it to pieces and they start sending it out and they're not, and they don't work on anything else. Like they don't start the next thing. And, And part of me is just like, i am gobsmacked because it's like, I've got a million ideas. I'm always working on like five things. At one. How can you not be writing something new? <laughs> you know? um, I'm always working on something new because I, if I can live a hundred years and still not have enough time to write all the ideas that I have. Um, but I, I talk to writers all the time who, who they write their one thing and then they work on selling the one thing and they don't write the second thing. And it's like, how are you going to practice? How are you going to learn? You have to work on the next thing. Um, and the next thing, and the next thing. Um, yeah, it, that's that's imperative. I, I think, you know, it, as much as we talk about the marketing and, and how sucky the whole publishing business is and how terrible, how hard it is to get stuff out in front of readers, um, I, I am heartened that at times it really does come down to the work and, and the writing and the stories and, and what you're working on next and how far you can push yourself, you know?
0: Totally. Okay. We have to take a five-second break
1: for for the listening audience's voice and
0: We'll be right back. This is the voice of Drinking With Authors. You are at our commercial break, and our commercial is, hey, do you want to be a guest on our show? Or do you have a question for one of the guests on our show? Or do you have a brilliant drink recipe that we've never heard of? That would have to stump us. But you could reach us at drinkingwithauthors at gmail.com or on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You can direct message, or even just leave a comment on one of our posts. We would absolutely love to hear from you.
1: Okay, we're back, we're back.
2: Okay,
0: so I think it's, you know, I love hearing this from that side. I don't think everything in the world of publishing is terrible. I think from my perspective, they are not catching up quickly enough with the change in the world. Because I love that they're self-publishing. At times I read stuff and I'm not happy they're self-publishing because <laughs> there's, you know, the thought of an editor, you know, or a spell check sometimes like there's a little bit of stuff that there's the bad sides to everything i think but i feel like we now have access to things we didn't have access to before because of self publishing right we get to hear different voices we never heard and i think it's interesting you say that because i think for some people the publishing journey is great they they're you know it was great and they got that going but to your point the Hope that they issue one book and it's *The Fault in Our Stars* and it does a bazillion dollars, or it's the you know *Silver Linings Playbook* and it's the most brilliant thing. But especially with sci-fi and fantasy and their stuff like that, it's usually not a one-book situation that gets you enraptured in that particular author. And I also think the timing of the publishing world is interesting and. I'm sure we could talk for hours and eventually we should meet in person and just talk for hours and drink things. But, um, I, you know, when COVID is gone, uh, but I think that, um, the publishing world, one thing too, is that self-publishing allows you to get closer instant gratification and your hands fans instant gratification because you're not going through whatever this weird cycle is in the publishing world. It's like, you know, and then 20 years later when did you write that book four years ago like and and it's just yep. coming out and i that's super duper annoying you know what i mean that it's already done you've already presented it to them and they're just doing whatever little little TikToky thing they got going on for a year and a half and then your book comes out you know or yep. it's not for great season and that stuff and so i i would like to see and when we when we started the publishing company We really did it—not that alter because we're we consider ourselves a little bit of a hybrid, but we traditionally publish. We're we're publishing for our authors, right? Mm -hmm. But we're taking the time out of it. We're changing the process flow so that it's not that. But the author has a lot of expectations too. Like you can't just be one of those authors with us. It's like I'm going to put a book out every three years. Yeah, you're you're not you're not one of our authors. I appreciate you, aren't you? But no, we want somebody that wants to do like three books. A year, like that's what we want to feed the machine. so yeah.
2: and I, any more, like when somebody comes to me for publishing advice, like particularly publishing advice, not just writing advice. I really try to find out what they want, what their goals are, uh, because that that's what the self-publishing movement has changed for me. It's it's, you know, what is this person's expectation? What does being published mean? Uh, for this person who is asking me for advice Um, and, you know, making sure they understand how much work is involved um, in in each one. Like it took me 10 years to break into traditional publishing, but I I feel like I got a lot of benefit from that. So it's like, it's like, where, where are you putting your work in? I put all the work in the front end to break into traditional publishing. And I'm far enough along in my career now, that like the rules, the rules are different. Um, and I'm still kind of working out what those rules are. Like I have enough of a reputation that I can I can do things that don't apply to somebody who's just breaking in right now. Yes. Um, And, you know, it, it drove me a little bit bananas when I saw somebody who ha- has a really great reputation in science fiction and has a really long established career start advocating for something that it's like, well, you can do that because you're established. But you're giving advice to somebody who's just breaking in now, who can't do what you did yeah. because you're established. So, so like navigating that has been really interesting um, and really difficult. So, so yeah, just trying, trying to talk to people, like, like if I talk to a new writer, who's like, well, I don't want to go the traditional publishing route because I, I can't face the rejection. I don't want to get rejection slips. I, ju- I just don't want publishers to reject me. And I'm like, well, okay, well, how are you going to feel when you get a one-star review on Amazon? I was like we're in the wrong. Like yeah, I, I was
1: saying the same. I was like, um, if you if you're gonna be that, you, you can't be too fragile. You
2: have yeah, to it, it's it's like so so if you're going into self-publishing because you think you're gonna avoid all of these things, well, here's all the other things that you're gonna have to deal with instead. Um, so so the way I put it is like self-publishing, you're gonna do a lot of work on the back end, you know, with the marketing and the publicity and you know, writing 10 books a year and and doing all of this stuff that you might not necessarily have to do on the other side. It's just, where do you want to put the work? Where, where are your talents? And and what do you want out of it? Like, like I talked to some people who they're, who they're, they just want to book out, you know, they just, they have these stories and they just want to put them out. You know, they've got a great day job. It's not like they're thinking they're going to make a living out of it. And it's like, okay, that's great. And it's like, but if you want to make a living out of this, there are some things you have to do. Um, and, and here's what they are. Here's what they are in self-publishing. Here's what they are in traditional publishing. It, it's There's so much to navigate and, and it's it's changed a lot. Like I said, it's, it's been really strange and interesting because the, the industry has changed completely from when I broke in. So on the one hand, I shouldn't be giving anybody advice. Like nobody should listen to me at all. Um, <laughs> Because it's it's totally different. It's, you know, the rules I learned, you know, as a baby writer are completely different than they are now. But at the same time, I, what I tell people is like, look at what you want to accomplish, you know, make sure you're very clear on your expectations and your goals. And why are you doing this? And is the path you're taking going to get you where you want to go? You know, like if, it, if your goal is to be you know, on the New York Times list and to win a Hugo Award, et cetera, et cetera. It's like there, there's a path, you know, there, there's a very well-established path to doing that. Um, and if you think you're going to get there by, you know, doing your novellas on Kindle, you're not going to get there just because that's not what the path looks like. That's still a totally viable option um, for a different set of goals. Um yeah
0: no I think it's true. I think you know it it's the acknowledgement you want what do you want from it and what are the true expectations I always I always tell people when they're looking at writing any any art form or anything actually anything because I work in yeah. I do human resources I'm a, a basically a chief human resource officer at a company you wouldn't believe it from hanging out with me but <laughs> they let me talk to thousands of people so um, <laughs> But one of the things I always tell people is you need a correct estimation of effort on what it is yeah. because you have to decide. One of my favorite sayings is the juice worth the squeeze. Because going down a path, there's a lot, whether it's traditional or self publishing, like you said, there's all these little barriers that you have to. You want to be on the New York Times bestseller list, or you can actually research what that takes to get there and how you have to do it. And is that the acknowledgement you want? And is, is that worth it to you in the end? And can you also sustain it? Because like you talked about your 17 books in a series and you mentioned Laurel K. Hamilton. I think she's on book 29 of her Anita Blake series, right? Um, these people, and I don't know where Charlene Harris, where she's at, but you know, a lot of, I know she went past where she wanted to on that bad boy, but
2: yeah, you know, she she wrapped up the Suki Stackhouse, but she's doing some other things now.
0: Yeah. But you, you look at this and that's a sustained thing. You know, we we talk about the girl who writes 10 books a year. That's fantastic. Exception, not the rule. Do you have it in you? Do you have the creativity? Do you have the stamina? I'm going to use the word stamina to do 17 books in a series and have them come out and have them maintain that same level of um, awesomeness or incredible increase in awesomeness in order to do it because the idea of that some people might think but when you go cool so how many words per day can you write let's do some math let's pull out let's go back to our county let's pull out a little spreadsheet let's do this this is what it's going to take for you to write a hundred thousand word book now let's do 17 of those divided by you know like i think there's some practicality that i i think it's important not to to dash any dreams, but just to go, I call it the Marilyn Monroe syndrome. You know, they talk about how Marilyn Monroe was in a soda shop and somebody walked in and discovered her, right? Norma Jean, right. She was in a soda shop. They discovered her with her red hair, decided to dye it blonde and make her this big deal. But that's because they didn't have headshots the way they have headshots. They didn't have auditioning the way they have auditioning. It wasn't the same game at all. To your point, publishing was different 10 years ago so if you're expecting to be sitting there you know typing away in a starbucks and somebody walk up and go what are you writing and you know they go oh i'm writing about you know a zombie bounty hunter and somebody go i want to buy that as a matter of fact i want to buy 10 of those yeah you're not gonna you're not gonna marilyn monroe that shit it's not gonna happen so let me let's talk about 17 books is that story done or are you still
2: going um, yeah, it was, it was 14 books and it's done. Like, uh, a, I, I, um, <laughs> I, I'm about to do one of my time warp things again. I, I um, it. <laughs> so, so when I wrote the first book, I assumed nobody was going to publish it because nobody had published any of my other books at that point. Um, but they bought it. They wanted the second one. I had the idea for the second one. Uh, and then they wanted two more and I had the idea for two more and if you read the series, you could get to the end of book four, and that's like an end, like there's a pretty good end there. But writing that one is when I realized that like, oh, this could go on for a long time. I could actually, this, like the whole urban fantasy thing, it was clear that it had become a thing and that long series was the way that it was going. Um, And I had quit my day job (laughs) by that time. (laughs) So so that's when I started thinking. It's like, okay, how can I write a multiple book series, like an open ended series, which is different from like a fantasy trilogy that is like a complete story told over volumes versus an open ended series that could theoretically go on forever. Um, so I started thinking about, okay, how how am I going to tell a story over I don't know how many books. Like I at that point, it's like, okay, let's let's figure this out. And what I did is I gave myself kind of an endpoint. It's like i am going to wrap this up someday and this is what the end is going to look like i don't know how many books are going to be in the middle there but i've got the ending and i'm going to detour now and and talk about lois mcmaster bujold's vor saga because that is the series that taught me how to write a series it's my favorite science fiction book series um she i don't even know how many books she has right now she's been writing them since the 80s um and they're about this one family in this space opera universe and they're fantastic and it's i'm not a series reader like i'm not um like this is what surprised me most about writing a series is that i'm not really a fan of series which was another thing i had to grapple with it's like i'm not a fan of series how is it how am i going to write this series that i don't know how many books it's going to end up as um so i looked for i looked at bujold i looked at the four Cozigan saga it's like what do i love about this and how can i extract what I love about that series to help me write the Kitty books. Um, so I kind of, I, I developed this list of, of like, here are the things I need to make this a great series. And one of the things was there there needs to be a goal. Like each book has a story, but the overarching series needs to have something that it's aiming towards. Um, and that's what I ended up doing. It's like, so each book stands alone. Like each book tells a story, but the undercurrent of it all is that there's, there's a target that we're heading for. Um, and that when, when that gets resolved, then the series is done. And I was able to do that. I, I'm actually really freaking proud of it. Um, that, that I was able to do that the way that I wanted to do that. Yeah. The last book is called Kitty Saves the World. <laughs> so it's sort of like, this is the end. <laughs> you know, we can't get any bigger than this.
0: <laughs> that because you decided to
2: stop? Was that your choice to stop? It was a combination. So what happens is, like, I, I got offered contracts um, along the way. Like, okay, we want you to write, you know, two more kitty books. We want you to write three more kitty books. Um, there was a point where where they said, okay, we want you to write four more. And I kind of saw the writing on the wall at that point. Like the whole urban fantasy thing was starting to wind down um, for various reasons. And like, this is, this must've been around, you know, 2011, 2012, when I got offered that contract and, you know, the market was a wash in urban fantasy. Um, I, I saw, like, I could, I could map out what the rest of the series could look like. I, I, I mapped it out right there. The sales had kind of leveled out, um, at that point, um, you know, I had predict- been predicting, you know, the crash of urban fantasy for years at that point. Uh, but it was kind of a balance of like, what was the publisher offering versus what was my outline for the series looking like? And I was very lucky that it converged. Um, not every author in urban fantasy got that opportunity. Um, a lot of authors were cut off before they were able to wrap up their series the way that they wanted to, but I was able to kind of see, you know, I knew I had a four book contract and I could sort of see that it wasn't going to go past that, really, just from what the industry was doing and what the genre was doing. Um, so I was able to kind of map out my series for those last four books um, and and land when I wanted it to. Um, so yeah, I, I was able to do it kind of the way that I wanted to. And it was it was a, you know balancing like what the publisher was offering me versus what I wanted to do versus what the genre as a whole was doing if that makes sense.
0: It does, it, it's, it's many pieces. You stood back, which is very impressive. I don't think a lot of people take 10 steps back and look at the panoramic view of what's occurring on a situation.
2: And, and it is really hard because you sort of have to do it a couple of years in advance. And, and I felt really validated because like Charlene Harris and Kelly Armstrong uh, wrapped up their series within like a year um, like we all wrapped up our series within within a couple of years of each other, uh, which was super validating because it's like, oh, I'm not the only one who <laughs> saw who saw what was happening here. Um, and like this is kind of some more genre deepery, but this has happened before. Like where a subgenre gets really really popular and then the market gets flooded and then it crashes. Um, you know, you'll you'll still hear. People talking about the crash of the horror genre in the early 90s. Um, that, that, you know, Stephen King and Peter Straub kind of fueled this huge boom in horror fiction through the 80s. But it just got so flooded and there was just too much, and readers couldn't keep up and readers got tired of it and they just stopped buying it like cold turkey and, and the genre just crashed. Um, and I could sort of see the same thing happening with urban fantasy. What's really interesting is that that so many of those authors moved to self-publishing. It's like the audience was still there, but you know, it, it's like what you were saying. Traditional publishing had kind of lost touch with what the audience wanted, and and traditional publishing wasn't letting authors develop. They wanted bestsellers with book one, and it's like you're never going to get bestsellers with book one, like except in really unusual circumstances. You know it. It took me four books to hit the New York Times list. So, you know, it takes time to build an audience and they weren't giving authors time to build that audience anymore. Um, so, it, so everything crashed. It's like, you know, they were, they were, there were a lot of like books one and book two in a series, but, but nothing after that. Um, and, and there are readers out there who are like, they, they won't buy a series until there are five or six books in the series. And I understand that as well. But it's like, if you don't buy book one and book two, there's never going to be a book five and a book six. Um, and that's what that's what happened to urban fantasy. Um, you know, the, the traditional publishing wanted immediate returns, uh, but they weren't willing to give the time to build the audience. Um, and at the same time, self-publishing was happening. And there were a bunch of authors in self-publishing who were who were doing the instant gratification thing. It's like, you know, they'll have a new novella every two months and you can get your fix there. Um, there, there was a lot of things that converged with the whole urban fantasy thing and then mass markets. We could talk about how how mass market publishing has kind of collapsed over the last five years or so. yeah, um and and that contributed as well. But it is, yeah, we we there was there was a lot of writing on the wall and and like I said, I felt super validated just because there were a whole bunch of us who wrapped up our series within a couple of years of each other.
0: No, I, I, I think it's good. what got you decided to move on? The Robin Hood children. Because I'm drunk,
2: I'm going to jump to Robin Hood children. I could talk for hours about Robin Hood's children. Um, so I, I've always written lots and lots of different things. And, and this was this was from being a short story writer, you know, writing for science fiction and fantasy magazines. I feel so fortunate in science fiction and fantasy, we have all of these magazines that just want... They want good stories. Like that's all they want. They don't care what they're about. They don't care the genre. So while I was doing the, the kitty urban fantasy thing, I was also doing like crazy short stories like across genres. Um and it was really interesting. Like I'd have people come to me and saying, like, people know you do d- other things besides kitty, right? And it's like, well, no, <laughs> you know, like like the people who read kitty, all they want is kitty, and that's fine, that's great. Um, but meanwhile, like nobody cared what I was doing in these short stories. Like, so, so there's the branding issue. Like, like my traditional publisher was very concerned about branding. Like I should be Kitty and nothing else. But meanwhile, in short stories, like they didn't care what I did in short stories. Like nobody cares about branding and short stories. You're just a short story writer. And that's fantastic. And I love that. So I, I write everything. Like in short stories, it's everything. I've got so many ideas and and I'm just doing I'm covering so much ground, you know. And it's not by intention. It's just this is what I do. This is just what this is what it's like living in my brain. And and sometimes it's unpleasant. Um
0: hey, there's time travel in your brain. I'm very appreciative of this. Yeah, you know, yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, do you feel like you know, having the opportunity to write those short stories made sure that you weren't getting burnout from kitty? Because I, I think if yep. you were working on kitty, at one point you kind of like your excitement for kitty would just kind of like, you know, kind of descend into the pits of, you know. So do you feel like it helped keep your momentum with that series?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And it, it, it turns out as part of my writing process, like you'll talk to authors who start in short stories and then move to novels and never go back to short stories. It turns out short story writing is part of my novel writing process oh. uh, that I will – I always get stuck on my novels. Every single novel, I have gotten to a point where it's like, I'm sick of this. I don't wanna work on it anymore. I have no idea what happens next. I can put it aside and take two weeks off and write a short story that's completely different. And then I can come back to the novel with fresh eyes and fix whatever is wrong with it. And, And that's what I do. You know, I go back and forth because that's part of my writing process. So I get stuck on one thing, I move to something else. Yeah, Um, And and I can finish that. I can get that instant gratification of writing a short story, (laughs) which I can finish in a couple of weeks. And then I can go back to the novel and my subconscious has worked out whatever the problem was on the novel. Uh, I do that all the time. Um, And that's why I've been able to keep writing short stories because I need it. I need the break. I need to just do something completely different than whatever novel it is I'm working on at the time.
1: Yeah. No, I always hear that that's actually like the best thing to do, which I should take the advice um, because I've been like writing my current project for like seven years. And it's like, you know, they always say, you know, people should definitely, you know, open up to doing short stories to get that more instant gratification, because then it, it feels like you're making milestones in your writing yep. journey, you know, while you're yep. working on that other project that's, you know, taking, you know, more time. Eight years.
2: Eight. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Eight. And um. And so, so something I could I could talk about there is is the Robin Hood stuff is novellas. I had the idea for the Robin Hood stories like years and years and years ago, um, and I, I thought it was going to be a novel, but I couldn't quite pull it together, so I just kind of tucked it away. So, twenty-year writing career at this point. Uh, 20 years ago, novellas, there wasn't a big market for novellas. There were literally like three places you could publish science fiction and fantasy novellas and nobody else. There's just no place else to publish them. So I just didn't work on novellas. I, I didn't write novellas. I didn't, I didn't go there because I was competing with people like Connie Willis. You know, Connie Willis sends a novella to Asimov science fiction they're going to publish Connie Willis before they publish me and rightfully so because she's brilliant. Um, and and I love her to bits and they should publish the Connie Willis novella. But it meant that there's a very limited slot for, for how to get your novella out in the world. Um, it's totally different now. Yes,
0: It's yes. totally
2: different. <laughs> so over the last few years, I have discovered novellas and I love novellas. Um, and it's something I had never written before. Um, so my Robin Hood stories are novellas and, and I, I traditionally published them with Tor.com, um, oh, wow. which, which, is, which was something that didn't exist 10 years ago. You know, th- this was an avenue that was totally non-existent. So it's been really interesting for me that I had all of these novel ideas um, that I didn't really deal with, uh, you know, and just kind of tucked away because it turns out they weren't novels. They were novellas um and the self-publishing thing so i i said one of the things i've self-published is uh, a side character from the key stories named cormac um who's the badass bounty hunter um who also has a partner who's a victorian ghost and it's very complicated um <laughs> but uh but i've been able to write some novellas about them which is one of the things i wanted to do is it was a spin-off with them um you know, and novellas are great, but there's such a market for them now that didn't exist, and and that has been fantastic, kind of stretching that muscle. Um,
1: I've actually been seeing a lot of, especially because I write, um, you know, YA, and what I see the trend in YA authors is there is a, a, a more more of the writers are writing novellas in their current universe of the story that's really popular as you know uh pre-order incentives and newsletter yeah. incentives and it's a kind of a great way to like tell the fans like hey calm down i'm working on that next novel it's gonna come soon but here's a short a novella to you know hold you over and i th- it's yeah. a great tool for i think authors. we're also
0: side characters so what, yep that's what i've seen like gina showalter um has the allison zombie land and she's put out these novellas, like it's a series, but she's put out novellas about some of the side characters, yeah. kind of what we're talking about here, that allows you to hear more of that story that maybe you want. So you're still in the same realm, you're mm-hmm. still giving the same fans, mm-hmm. but you're, you're able to not be like, I'm only writing this project.
1: Well, I I also think that that junk folder comes into play because if you ever like wrote a scene for one of your current novels and it didn't fit into the main narrative, then you can come over here and be like, hey, it doesn't have to be a lost cause. I I can finish it out and, you know, either, you know, send it out to fans and you could still, you know, fans get to read it, but you don't have to worry about it ruining your main narrative or the pacing or anything like that.
2: And the turnaround is a lot faster. Like you can do it in a couple of months versus a novel, which I it takes me a little time to do a novel. Um, and and the novella is just kind of that perfect balance between you know it it you can turn it around faster, but you still kind of get that fully developed um, yeah. world uh, that you feeling that you get when you read a whole novel.
0: No, I no, I agree a hundred percent. Okay. We are actually getting near the end of time I'm for this. Serious. I know. We have a whole other sub episode to go, though, so we have more time to talk. We have more time to talk. Okay. What? Uh, um. What is the biggest piece of advice you would give authors out there listening to this?
2: Uh. So there's there's always the the write just write, like write as much as you can. But I follow that up with like get better, like learn. Uh. Analyze, like read a lot, like don't just write, but read like anytime you consume media, you need to analyze, Um, analyze for story. If you don't like something, figure out why. And then don't do that in your own stuff, (laughs) Um, you know, (laughs) like this seems really obvious, but, but it's true. It's like, you know, if that one TV show annoyed you, figure out why and don't do that. If you put that book down, figure out why. Because that's how you learn, and, and you know it's not just just writing over and over again isn't going to get you where you want to go. You need to learn, and you need to develop, um, and you do that by analyzing other other people's stuff. This is why my degrees in literature and not creative writing, uh, because I just I wanted to learn from what other people were doing, and and I think that's something that we don't talk enough about. It's like how be an active consumer. Of, of media and then pull that into your own work so that you can learn and get better and develop.
1: Yeah, especially diverse. Anything that's outside mm-hmm. of what you're planning to write is sometimes because it allows you to make a spin on that current genre because you don't want to be, again, what you were saying earlier is you don't want to mimic what is already out there. You want to present something new. So, you know, that's why you want to consume things outside of your genre as well. Yep.
0: Agreed. Okay, so how do people find you? Don't give me your home address. I have to say that every time because I had an <laughs> author do that. I know don't think you'd actually do that, but I have to now oh. preface because the author literally was like, Oh yeah, no, I live at and I'm like
2: <laughs> Oh I I had a stalker, so I don't do that um, at all. <laughs> oh it's terrible.com. Um, I'm also on Facebook, uh, pretty easy to find on Facebook. Um, I don't have a Twitter, I've managed to avoid Twitter, but I do have a blog at kerryb.wordpress.com um, where I just I just talk about stuff. So yeah, I'm I'm out there. I'm Google me. Google me. Well you have it's been
0: mine. absolutely brilliant. Thank, Thank you so much. much. <laughs> I like that that was the right spot. You've read a million things and we laugh. Okay, so this has been Drinking the Fathers. I'm Erica Lance. And we'll see you next
1: time.